The world, the flesh, and pride. The world, the flesh, and pride. And today we're going to start with the area of the world. And more likely next week we will still be on the world. Because the world has found its way into our lives, into the church, and, and, and so many areas of just everyday life for the Christian. The world has just crept in. It's come to a place that even in many ways, when you hear a Christian speak, when you hear the philosophy of a Christian, it is not so much sometimes the world, not, I'm sorry, it's not so much the philosophy of the Bible, it's not the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not the mind of Christ, it's not the teaching of Christ, but it's the philosophy of the world. And oftentimes as Christians, we don't look to solve problems in a Christian manner, we look to solve problems in a worldly manner. We conduct our lives more towards a worldly way of living than we do as a Christian way of living. And we have to decide, what are we? Are we Christians? Or are we just people of the world? And it's sad to say that a lot of us as Christians, we really don't look any different than those of the world. And we are called to be a peculiar people. We are called to be a strange people. We are called to be different. We are called to be the saints of God, the children of God. And because we are called, there ought to be something strangely different about us. And oftentimes it's very hard to see or to find. And we need to become a people who are willing to have things cut away from us. Understand, you cannot give up one thing of the world until you start praying about it. Like I said, as a young man, you wouldn't catch me in a small car. I was going to be in a good-sized car. I was going to be in something fancy because that's what it was. Jane back there laughing. He same way, you know. <laughs> you know? He used to be out there too with his Jack Daniel. I have mine. And good thing the Lord caught hold of us. And the whole process is that the Lord has to cut it away. I remember one day as a young man, I had my alcohol sitting on the counter in our kitchen. And one day the Lord just spoke. Now I took those bottles of alcohol, about three bottles of fish, and just poured them down the drain. Never brought another bottle in. Used to love to smoke my pipe, especially with cherry blend. And I started that habit while I was in Vietnam in the military. And brought it home with me. But eventually just had to stop smoking because Understanding this is the temple of God. And God has to just cut things away from you. Okay. Used to leave Elaine on Friday night and Saturday because Friday night was the time to go out popping and go out dancing and go out and do this. Okay. No, the Lord has to cut that away from you. And what we have to realize is that God has to begin to just cut things away from us, but understand, he won't cut until we ask. I'll never forget when my back, I first went to the doctor about my back. The doctor said, you need to go to surgery. I said, no, no, no. 
He said, when the pain gets bad enough, you'll call me and say, let's go. <laughs> and he got bad true. enough, and I called him and said, it's time. It's time. When life gets to a place with you, especially if you're a Christian, because God's going to earmark those things, and he's going to begin to point them out, and he's going to bring it to your attention, but you're going to have to ask him, Lord, take this from me. Remember that little skit we had last week with the young man with his anger? And when he thought he stabbed the boy, but the knife hit the buckle, and he ran home, and he asked the Lord, take this anger from me, take this anger. You have to begin to ask the Lord, take it from me, take it from me. And when you begin to ask God to take it from you, he'll begin to cut away at your life. But you know something? He realized this here. If you give a baby a bottle, you give a baby a sucker to suck on, and then you try to take it, what are they going to do? They're going to cry, and they're going to fight you with it a little bit. The world has given us this, this, and that. And God's just not going to snatch it from us because he knows what's going to happen. A quick rebellion is going to take place. But he will cut it away when you come to a point that you are ready for it to be cut. That's why we have some Christians that never grow up, never mature. They never look like Christ. They're the ones in Corinthians 3 that said, they just make it by fire. They just make it through. They just make it through. Am I going to get there? In Matthew 10, 34, it says that Christ didn't come to bring peace, but he came with a sword. With a sword. Let's just look at that sword just for a moment, and there's more verses about this sword than what's there, but look what he says. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the devil's work. To destroy the devil's work. That's why Christ came. To destroy the work of the devil. In my life, in your life. He's come for that purpose. To take it away. To remove it. To totally destroy it out of our life. That we no longer desire it. We no longer want it. He says he appeared for that purpose. To destroy the devil's work. When he comes on, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. Now, he says, you have to take it too. You have to use this sword too. And this sword is to defend and ward off the things of Satan. But you have to use the sword also. And Christ is going to use the sword. No thing about the sword, you can never use it on what? Yourself, basically. Wouldn't it be nice if we could perform our own surgery? That doesn't happen. But again, he says, here's a sword that you have to use. But always remember, Christ came with the sword. He says, out of the mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. And it's talking about Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. That Christ will come with a sword, a sharp sword, that strikes down the nations. He uses the sword. World, the cosmos, 
is an order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to, and you need to recognize this, his ideals, his aims, and his methods. I want you to recognize that. That Satan in this world has his ideals, his aims, and his methods that he's going to introduce into your mind and your heart. Elaine, come here. Yeah, I'm going to do this with you. In the church, oftentimes we taught dancing is what? Simple. Wrong. No. Name me a culture that you know that don't dance. The Irish have their jig. Yes, the Germans have theirs. Everybody has a style of their dance. And it even says in the Bible that the Israelites danced for the joy. It was an expression of joy. Because in a moment we're going to talk about institutions that are somewhat established in the world and so forth. Dancing is one of those institutions even. Young men, young ladies, just pay attention for a moment. If you're going to dance, keep a distance. Now, young ladies, you're the one who have to keep the distance. Because the young man is always going to be trying to. <laughs> but you can dance. The word is lasciviousness. Is when dancing takes on an inappropriate style when the movements of the body begins to entice. But you can dance in such a way that your body is not enticing. So when the young man is dancing with you, and then when you turn, make sure you don't wiggle. <laughs> because you change his eyes. Okay? Because now Satan has taken this thing called dancing and made it very simple, very bad. So what we do as Christians, we sneak out and dance. We hide it. And dancing really is one of the best exercises that you can do. You can square dance. You can waltz. You can do different ballroom dancing. Some of that ballroom dancing on TV you don't want to watch. But you can dance. And you can go to the prom and you can dance, but you make sure you keep this distance between you and the young man. Okay? Because it can be done. But Satan will take it and he will abuse it. And he'll make it something nasty, something unclean, something unholy. And we can't do it. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about that Satan has his ideal. Because Satan can't come up with anything new. He can only take what's already here and use his imagination, his ideals, what God has instituted, and turn it around and make it unclean, unwholesome, impure. And he says his ideals, his aims, and his methods. How many of you are using Satan's methods in your life? Oftentimes you hear, you hear the world say it in this way. If you can show me this in the Bible, I will agree with you. 
But it's a terminology for Satan, not a terminology for Christians or the Lord. The Lord never says, get over. You can't find that in the Bible. You're getting over. Because the Lord says you're an overcomer. The Lord says you're victorious. It's Satan in his language that teaches people to go around, I'm getting over. I'm getting over. No. No. You're victorious. You're an overcomer. You're not just getting by. You're just not getting over. You're an overcomer. Totally different. But Satan will teach you a different language than what's in the Bible. And his methods will be different. And he will cause you to work differently. And he goes on, he says, it is a world of people functioning apart from God. How many of you find yourself functioning or planning the things of your life apart from God? When God says, pray without ceasing, that you can ask me anything, you can tell me anything, you can talk to me constantly, you can lay your plans out, and I'll take your plans, and I'll examine your plan, and I'll remove all the flaws out of your plans if you give them to me. Not too long ago, we went through Proverbs 16. Yeah, a man plans things, but God is the one who really brings them what? To pass. He's the one, if you allow him to intervene into your plans, but he won't bust in there. But if you ask him in prayer, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Lord, is this how I am to do it? Lord, are you pleased with this? If you ask him, he'll talk to you. And he'll confirm and he'll show you. And he says, boy, what happens, we become a world that does, that does not assign God any consideration or respect to our daily lives or to their daily life. We don't bring God into our daily life. The world shuts him out. And you take a good look at the world today. Everything the world is doing is constantly doing what? Setting God to the side. Setting God to the side. Setting God to the side. And the world continues to do that. That even the Christians are practicing that. We set God to the side Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and all of a sudden on Sunday, God day! When every day is his day. Every moment is his day. But we learn to operate, and this is what the world wants to teach us. The world wants to teach us to operate without God being involved. This system embraces the slogan, and this becomes the world's slogan somewhat. I did it my way without God. Remember Frank Sinatra and his song, I did it my way? It's that whole thing. I did it my way without God. It's a godless, self-governing life. And that's what most people want. I want to govern my own life. I want to do my own thing. And what we don't understand, we're going to look at it as we continue to look at the world. We're going to see how Satan himself is blinded by sin, though he is the father of sin. And it comes that title because he's the first one in a sense to sin, but sin blinded Satan. And we're going to see that. That sin blinded Satan. And sin will always blind you to a relationship with God. Sin will always blind you 
when you look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 when it talks about Satan and it says that he was lifted up both those words in the Hebrew is a sense a word that means cloudiness cloudiness that the mind was made cloudy it couldn't see clearly couldn't see clearly God loves the world, but the believer is told not to love the world, or the love of the Father is not in him in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Let's go there. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, do not love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. But from the world. But from the world. Now, it seems like it would be a conflict here. God is saying, for me not to love the world, but in John 3.16 it says, God so loved the world. The word world in the New Testament is used 187 times. 41 times it is referring to the thing of age or time. Age or time. 14 times I believe it is referring to the world in the sense of designated habitation where people are going to live. What God is talking about in 316 is this, that he loves the people of the world. He loves humanity, not the institutions, not the values, not the standards of the world, but the people of the world. John is speaking about the values of the world and the institutions of the world, the governance of the world. And he's saying, don't love the institutions. Don't love the values. Don't love the methods. Don't love the ways of the world. Because the world has a system that it wants to teach us. And God has a system that wants to teach us. And what we often will fall on is that everybody's doing it. And because everybody's doing it, well, if you check around in the church, if you're close to the church, a lot of church folks isn't doing it. But we come up with this whole faith, what the world is doing. And the problem is, the focus is, is on the world, not on the church. God loves the world. His love is for humanity, people of the world. Apart from its evil institutions, its evil methods, its evil ways, its evil teaching, order how things are to function. Because the whole thing about the world is cosmos, is order. It's order. It's order. How things are to function. The style of behavior, the style of fashions, the style of government. 
All that is included in the things of the world. Many hospitals went to the title of behavior sciences because if the behavior is wrong, we have to study it. We just have to figure out and then we have to fix it. The whole process is that they don't look at sin as being sin. Go to Matthew 4 8. Let's take a couple of these. Matthew 4 8. Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And he simply says in 4 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And the King James it says, their glory. And here the splendor is those things that really stand out, really look good to us. And we say, oh, I want that, I want that. Not knowing it's not any good for us. Because it's the way Satan has projected it, not God. It's the way Satan is promoting it, not God. The way Satan is allowing you to see it, not God. Always remember there's two views. There's two views. When you focus in on something, there's two views. There's the way God sees it and the way the world sees it. I'm going to take a dandelion. How many of you like dandelions in your yard? We, we do all we can do to get rid of those yellow dandelions. To us, when we see them, boy, they're killing our grass. But there's times you can ride along the highway and you can see all those yellow things out there and the sun reflecting from them, and they're just as beautiful as they can be. And when God looks at them, he created them. He knows the problem that they cause us. No. But the beauty of them, and every yellow has its own distinct yellow. Just a little bit different. And oftentimes when we're looking at the world, we only see one view, the world's view. How does, how does God want you to see it? When you're looking at dating, do you look at it from the world's view? Or do you look at it from a biblical view, God's view? How many of you are dating would take, young lady, how many of you would take your boyfriends home to meet your dad and mom? First date. If he is nice, maybe. So you're going to date somebody not nice. <laughs> no, but that, see, the world says it's none of mom and dad's what? Business. And that's the very first thing you should do. Take home that mom and dad look, and especially dad. That, in a sense, ought to be every young lady's first date. And that whole process should be looking for dad's approval about this guy. What does dad see? Seeing a different view. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Because the whole process is that when this world, and he took him up there, Satan did, and showed him all the splendors of this world, all the glories of this world. 
all the things of this world that oftentimes, sometimes we think, this is what we want. This is what we want. And in reality, we really don't want this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Underline ways of the world if you don't have one. Because it is that. The world wants to teach us its ways. How it functions. How it makes up a household. How its household works. In a household of God, there ought to be peace and joy and a thing that's called family, not individuality. In the world, it's, in, it's individuality. Oh yes, we're all there, but we're not pulling together as one family. And in, a, in the world, the family is struggling, and we need to come up with a good word for it now. See, this should not be in the Christian home, a dysfunctional family. In the world's family, there's going to be dysfunction. Why? Everybody wants their own will. Everybody wants to do it their way. In the Christian family, we're all looking to do it one person's way, God's way. Whether it be mom, dad, children, girls, we're all looking to do one thing, God's way. God's way. That brings about the unity. The thing that causes the family to be dysfunctional is when there's no unity in the family. And you can find it creeping in because, boy, when the world begins to creep in, even in the Christian family, it begins to cause disturbance in it. But that's what drives the Christian family to prayer. But the Christian family should be never known as a dysfunctional family. And he says, boy, the ways of the world, the ways of the world. And when you get into Acts 29, just Acts 2, 529, Peter them are saying, yes, we need to obey God rather than man. What is he saying? Rather than these legal institutions that have been set up by government, we need to obey God rather than these things. Legal institution, gay marriage. Legal institution, lesbians. Legal institution, drink all you want to drink. Legal institution, smoke up whatever you want to smoke up. Like Roger said, when I come to Denver, we're not going to do it on the front porch. We're going to the back porch. <laughs> some of you call it some of you. <laughs> But the thing is, because you legalize marijuana, because you legalize something, don't make it good for you. One of the things that they did even in the military, if you remember, using the military at 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, but you couldn't go anywhere and drink because you were not 21. So we come up with this whole thing in the military. If you can be drafted at 18, you should be allowed to drink at 18. If you can die at 18, you should be allowed to do this at 18. No. And we institutionalize, so therefore we have a lot of young 18, 19 year old kids getting drunk. And a lot of them 21 getting drunk. You know. Just because you say something is right and legal and, and people can do it, 
doesn't make it right. And that's where the Christian looks at it. Just because the world says, I can shack up, don't make it right. They tried common law marriage. A lot of states have done away with common law marriage. They don't want it because they, they found out there was more trouble with common law marriage than what it was with institutional marriage. And they did away with that. The ways of the world, the ways of the world are there. It is impossible to deny sin in this world. And we need to recognize it. It's impossible to deny it. How many of you this week just watched news and picked up your paper every day? Somebody's getting shot. Somebody's getting killed. Somebody's shooting at the mall. Somebody's shooting at school. Somebody's doing something else. You can't deny sin. But how does the world see it? A secular psychologist will never call it sin. Will never call it sin. Can't call it sin. Because as far as they're concerned, sin does not exist. How does the world then define sin? Number one, to the scholar or to the very educated person, it's just ignorance of the other person. That's all. They just don't have the knowledge. They just haven't been taught. They just haven't been trained. So they're ignorant. Now, there's a difference between being ignorant because people keep you ignorant, and then there's willful ignorance where you will not allow yourself to be taught. But they throw it off as ignorance. The second is the evolutionist view of sin. Sin is the nature of the person still evolving. They haven't got there yet. They may get it in the next life, but they ain't got it yet in this life. Plus they're still growing. They're still evolving. They're still learning. <clears throat> to others, sin is a disease to be treated by science. Because man is not a sinner. Man is not a sinner. Man doesn't sin. To say so is to say they are. The people who hold this position to say that that person sinned would have to admit that they themselves may be a what? A sinner. So they're not going to say that that is sin because if they say that is sin, then they have to look at themselves and ask themselves, are they possibly a sinner? And then to others, sin is simply a weakness of the flesh we have to live with. So when we gather in these world's views of what sin might be, we understand that a lot of people don't want to ever deal with sin. And people see that sin then is different, and they'll never call it sin. It's just misbehavior. It's ignorance. It's not that they're not intelligent enough to know right from wrong. It's that they have not evolved yet. They have not matured to that point yet. We give all these excuses. And one of the things that we will not acknowledge is that if you take away sin, then there's no crime. If there's no crime, now follow with me here for a moment in thought. If there's no crime, we have no need for jail. 
of prisons. Where did that concept come from? Where did jail or prison come from? Understand, jail and prison was, a, was introduced on the basis of a punishment for the action that went forth. You acted this way, there was not an agreement with society, we punished you by putting you in jail or prison. Looks like a lot number. Stay with me, man. Thank you. In jail or prison, we are constantly trying to what? Rehabilitate that individual. I want you to hang on to that because of the concept. We're trying to rehabilitate that person who we are punishing while they're in jail or prison because of their behavior or their action against society. I want you to think with me just one moment. What's the purpose of hell? To punish. To punish for what? Not so much the, dis the misbehavior, but for not agreeing or allowing your behavior to be what? Changed by Christ. Therefore, Christ came to destroy the works of Satan, who you have spent and I have spent much time with until we met Jesus Christ. But when we meet Christ, he wants to change our attitude, he wants to change our behavior, he wants to change our thinking, which we have been taught by Satan. Now, if we're not willing to accept that, then comes the punishment, which is prison or known as hell. And there's a separation then from that group over here that is going to live in peace with God to this group over here that lives in rebellion against God. Now, you need to understand that everyone who goes to hell is in rebellion against God. And when the rebellion ceases, they accept Christ. But until that rebellion ceases and that behavior changes, now comes that punishment. And we call crime often crime. But what is crime? If you really break crime down, crime is some type of sin, even if it's no more than stealing a candy bar. Because the Lord said, you shall not Still. God's view is a world in sin, sin and transgression of his law. Sin is coming up short of his plan or his glory for man. And we need to understand that. Sin is the transgression of his law. Not willing to accept his law. Not willing to accept his will. Not willing to accept his way. And we are the ones who transgress that. And what happens when we do that, we come up short of glorifying him or living out his plan. 
Sin is rebellion against God's will. And oftentimes we don't want to acknowledge that. Sin is a rebellion against his will. His will for my life and what I want to do. And it's a constant rebellion against him that I'm going to do it my way. But I want to do it my way, but I don't want to suffer the consequences that come. I want to have my own way. I want to do my own thing. But I don't want the consequences that might come because I decided not to do it God's way. Now understand this. Even as a Christian, when you are obedient to God, God does not promise you there won't be consequences. You need to understand that. Because there's a lot of Christians who are suffering in Muslim countries and consequences that come to them only because they name the name of Christ, because they are saved, because they believe in Jesus. But it doesn't come because of sin. It doesn't come because of sin. It, becomes, it comes because of who they are in Christ. And Christ said, if they persecuted me, what would they do to you? Sin, oh, come on back. Went too far, too fast. Sin is always a consequence behind it. And oftentimes we don't want to recognize the consequences that come. But the whole process is that when we get to that area of sin where we are rebelling, it leads us into that area of unbelief. Sin is unbelief concerning what God has said. God has said, don't do this, and guess what? I'm going to do this. Remember what we said earlier about the world? That it does not want you to include God into it, into your thinking, because God says don't do it, but you're going to do it anyhow. That's where Satan entraps you and then he holds you. And you become an unbeliever to what God says. And when you become an unbeliever to what God says, and you're not willing to follow and do what God has explained and have stated and have set down for you to do, boy, then comes the consequences. But I don't want that. And you hear people always saying, I don't know why it don't work out. I don't know why it don't work out. Because you're not doing it God's way. And it'll never work out until you do it God's way. Unbelief is that error concerning what God said. If God says don't be unequally yoked, God meant that. God meant that. Now understand something. There's boundaries to that also. There's boundaries to that. A gentleman called me some time ago and he said, Gus, can I go into business? This guy, he doesn't know the Lord, but can I go into business? With I said, that's something you've got to really sit down and you ask him, what are going to be the parameters that you guys are going to work under? Now, if you can't agree to those parameters, answer that is no. The parameters would be that which will legally then tie you together as a contract. Now, the moment I sign my mortgage, most likely who I sign my mortgage with, that mortgage company, company may not be a believing company. Am I equally yoked with a mortgage com com company at that point? Because I'm a Christian, 
and the mortgage that I'm with, they don't believe in God? No, that's what I'm saying. There are boundaries to it. The thing is that I'm not tied so much person to person with somebody who is an unbeliever who is going to then help conform me to the image of Satan rather than to the image of Christ. If I understand this, 1 Corinthians 15, that bad company corrupts. And that goes into the same area then of being united with an unbeliever. It can't corrupt me without those parameters, without those boundaries. Therefore, a believer is never expected to marry what? An unbeliever. It just causes problems. One's going to be trying to pull you one way, you're trying to pull the other one, and there's no way in that. He says, boy, concerning what God has said. God has said for young people to obey your parents. The law comes along and says, you don't have to obey them. No, you don't have to obey them. Okay. Who do you follow? Roger was telling me out in Denver, you cannot uh, smack your young person's hand. You see them in the store, you can't smack their hands or you can't smack their body. You would be arrested. I said, federal law will not allow that. So, hey, me and my grandkids out there, somebody getting smacked. Well. We're just going to fight it out in court. The whole process is that who are we to obey? God says, you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Who am I going to obey? He didn't say abuse the child. He didn't say beat the child. And abusing him. But who do I believe? What God says or what man says? Sin is doing your own thing without God's approval. You need to understand that. And that's where a lot of us fall into an area. What am I doing? Has God placed his seal of approval on it? Has God said okay to it? Now, I'm going to take a key here from Charles Stanley. But he, he, he had preached this sermon about three times this week. But in this sermon, he said, if you have not heard from God, you need to get your face before God and ask God to speak to you. Because if you're his child, he wants to talk to you. Show me a parent that doesn't want to talk to their child. He said, if you haven't heard from God, you need to get on your knees before God and ask the Lord, Lord, Speak to me, that I can know this is your will for my life. That I can know this is the person you want me to be with my life. This is the job I am to be on in my life. That this is the right direction for me to be heading. That you need to really seek God. And what you're seeking is this here, God's approval. God's approval. You want God's approval on your life. You want God's approval on your behavior. You want God's approval on what you're doing in life. You want God's approval. That God stamps it. God says it's okay. God says, well pleased, I'm pleased with what you're doing. Romans 3.23. Let's go to it real quick. 
Romans 3.23. Many of you already know it by heart. But God has come to that place with us that we got to ask ourselves those important questions. God, is it pleasing in your sight what I'm doing? Is it pleasing? Is it okay what I'm doing? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And we, and, and we fall short in so many areas when we don't have his approval, when we're not pleasing to him. Catch this in Isaiah 1, 2. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, the Holy Spirit just puts things sometimes in such a certain way that it's just, uh, he says, Hear, O heaven, listen, O earth. For the Lord has, what? Spoken. Are you listening to God? He's spoken. He's spoken through his word. He wants to speak to you. He's spoken. And he says, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, now, now catch the second part. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. I've raised them up. I've provided for them. I've given them all that they have need of. And they rebelled against me. They turned on me. I provided for them. I worked hard for them. And they rebelled. They rebelled. The word the word world here means all the present order of things. The world here means all the present order of things which appeals to the flesh as an object of desire apart from, the, apart from and in rivalry to God. Everything that will set itself up in Satan's world to cause you to take a step away from God, you need to ask God, cut it away. Cut it away. Remove it from my life. Everything that would cause you to walk as a child of Christ, you need to ask God, take it out of my life. Take it out of my life. Understanding this principle, he won't make you give it up. Because if you love that thing more than you love him, it's evident most likely you're not saved. It's evident where he's at in your life. That he's not very important. He's not the person who is really dear to you or close to you. Anything that is a rivalry to God I had to do that with my job even. Because once I committed myself to be a Sunday school teacher, even though Chrysler said double time on Sunday, I had to be in the classroom teaching. Why? It became a rivalry with God. Anything that would cause you to step away from God, 
You need to let it go. So I had to let go of a lot of friends. Because their whole thing was they wanted to do this, this, and that. And I couldn't do it. I had to cut some family members. And remember, he says he comes into the home. He'll cut brothers, sisters away. He'll cut family members away. Why? Because they will draw you away from him. And he says, anything, any object, whether it be car, whether it be the love of money, whether it be the love of clothes, whether it be love of house, any type of material thing that you find yourself that is more important to go after that than it is God, you need to say, Lord, cut it away from me. Cut it away from me. Take it away. Because our desire and our lust for that is very, very strong. And when we get into the pride of life, you'll see how that connects the lustful desire and the pride of life. And we'll see we can connect those two things when we get there. Because Satan's whole fall, his whole downfall, not that he saw God as God, the Lord of Lords. Not that he saw God as being the supreme one. His pride said, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. You may not say those exact words, but you're saying it when you will not submit to him. You're saying, I want to be like God. I want to govern over my life like God would govern over my life. I want to be in control of my life like God would be in control of my life. He says, Demas loved the world in 2 Timothy 4.10. For a while he was there with Paul, working with Paul, being involved in the things of the kingdom of God, and then all of a sudden, he walks away. And Paul says, Demas loved this world. The world has a pull on you if you allow it. Listen to some people. Oh, you just want to be in church all the time. Are you in the world all the time? It's not bad being in church all the time. It has some benefits. It has some blessings. It will keep you. It will help you walk a holy life. It will help you live a separated life from the world. See, you're either going to camp in the world and live there and give 10% of your time to church while you're giving 90% of your time to the world or you're going to give yourself 90% of the time to the Lord and 10% of the time to the world. It's your choice. And God has already said, I've given you six days to work. One day keep it holy. One day use it for me. One day praise me with And guess what? We struggle doing that. 
And then closing, he simply says, who overcomes the world? The saints of God. He says, we are those who overcome the world. Go to 1 John 4.4. 4. First John four four. He says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Catch that. Greater than the one that's in the world. Greater than the one that's in the world. Greater than the one that's in the world. There is one in the world who wants to defeat you. There's one in the world that wants to teach you sin and wrong ways of living. There's one in the world that wants to dominate your life. There's one in the world. But the Lord says the one that is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. What is he saying? The one in you can fight off the one that's in the world. The one who dwells in you, the one who lives in you, is greater if you allow him to stand up. He can fight off the one that's in the world. But if you don't allow Christ to be in control, then the one in the world takes over and defeats you in every area. 5-4, 1 John 5-4, and we're done. He says, for everyone born of God overcomes. Just don't get by. Just don't get over. But overcome, big difference. I overcome this thing. I overcome this thing that is trying to grab me in its grips and control me. I overcome it. I overcome my sex addiction. I overcome my drug addiction. I overcome my money addiction. I overcome my cussing addiction. I overcome, I overcome, I overcome it. But you don't get by. I overcome it. And he says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Now, look, even our faith. You won't be an overcomer unless you learn how to operate in faith. You will not defeat anything in your life unless you know how to use faith. You will never be successful in life without faith. Without faith. For faith is that evidence of things yet hoped for. If you have the faith and if you can believe it, God says all things are possible. You can overcome it. You can overcome it but you're going to have to exercise faith. Being unsuccessful, being defeated in life, never knowing victory, is at the cost of one thing, faithlessness. Faithlessness. Never exercising faith. Amen?
Well, it wasn't one of those arousing messages, was it? But I hope that you caught it. The world wants to destroy you. And God wants to build you up. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you, O God, that you warn us against the things of this world. And that, Lord, the God of this world, the prince of this world, Satan himself, fights against us. 